First John, chapter four. And I will be taking as my text this morning, verse 10. Follow along as I read first John four ten. in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Dear friends, on this glorious Resurrection Sunday, I feel compelled to move away from our verse-by-verse exposition of the Gospel of Matthew, at least for this Sunday. And I would rather focus this morning on some crucial aspects of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, especially one aspect of that salvation that I fear is often neglected, many times misunderstood, and unfortunately even hated by some. And that aspect is the appeasement of divine wrath. It's frustrating to me because there are so many marvelous concepts in the gospel. It's hard to choose just one to speak upon. When I talk of my Savior, I find myself wanting to talk of all of his excellencies. I find I want to sing all the hymns. I find that somehow you just can't find a spot to shut it off. And this morning, I believe that as we come to this pinnacle of a worship service, when we humble ourselves before the preaching of the word of God, I feel that we've got to do something to focus more exclusively on this particular aspect of God's saving grace in our life. The idea of Jesus being the appeasement of divine wrath. When talking about our redemption, we could immerse ourselves in the marvels of sovereign grace and divine election. We could find ourselves marveling at his divine calling for those that he has foreloved. Or we could spend much time studying the staggering truths of regeneration when the spirit of God comes into our dead corpses and breathes new life so that we can have faith in Christ. We could spend much time looking at the concepts of conversion, the issues of faith and repentance. Certainly, we could spend time getting lost in the depths of justification where Christ has imputed his righteousness, righteousness to our behalf, or we could Get lost in the wonders of adoption, what it means to be the children of God, part of God's family. We could also get lost in the marvels of sanctification where we grow into the likeness of Christ through the power of the Spirit of God as he reveals his word to us. Or we could look at the baptism by and the filling with the Holy Spirit. We could look at the perseverance of the saints. We could look at glorification and that time when we will receive our resurrection bodies. Well, indeed, all of these great theological categories have stirred the hearts of the redeemed throughout redemptive history. But today I feel compelled to lead us back to that original pasture where we first met the good shepherd. 
where by divine grace we experienced the miracle of the new birth. When we first learned of his infinite love and his undeserved mercy and his unmerited grace. Now, for some of you, this morning will be just a review, an inspiring review. For others, it will be clarification that will no doubt stir your heart to a new level of faith and obedience. And perhaps for some of you, it will be the first time when you have heard the gospel of Christ presented with clarity. And certainly you will be confronted with the reality of simply What am I going to do with these truths? Will I receive these truths with great joy or reject them with great pride? And certainly my responsibility is to preach them with sufficient clarity that either one can occur. This Easter season provides a context for many people to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, it also serves as a time to demonstrate many distortions of basic Christianity. All you have to do is look at those who are talking, or I should say listen to those who are talking about the recent movie, The Passion of the Christ. I spoke on it several weeks ago. And you see all of the confusion about who Jesus was and is. I noticed on Fox News they've had... Um, a little expose on who is Jesus. I haven't seen it. You know, it's sad. Christian churches all over the United States and people are still having to ask, who is Jesus? And I know you can line up a hundred people that profess Christ and ask them to explain even the basic plan of salvation. And it's amazing to see how many distortions of truth you will hear. Worse yet, you ask the average Christian Who killed Jesus? And you hear these endless arguments. Well, it was the Jews. Well, no, it was the Romans. Well, no, it was all of us. Or you can go deeper and say, for whom did Jesus have to die? Or we could ask, what are the significant reasons for the resurrection of Christ? All of these things should be basic for Christians, but sadly they're not. Or we could go a little deeper yet as we're going to today and ask, what does this 1 John 4.10 mean? The propitiation of our sins. Well, today we're going to have answers to those questions and I hope more. And I don't want to lose you. My purpose this morning is not to lose you in some theological black hole where you end up saying, well, who cares? But no, these glorious truths are basic. And this is really theology 101, dear friends. And I hope that you will see that even a child can understand these truths. It's a very common problem today. Many Christians take some of these things for granted. Some have never really been taught. And certainly many are confused with the proliferation of false teaching that continues to assault the truth of the gospel of Christ. And because I am called as your pastor to proclaim and protect the truth, I am compelled to preach these things to you today. And these will be timeless truths that glorify our God and exalt our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And certainly for every twice born saint, these should thrill our hearts with an indescribable exhilaration of joy and move us to a renewed place of worship. And so my prayer this morning 
is that you will see the glorious majesty of Christ in a new way and get lost once again in the wonder of the love of God and and rejoice anew at the mercy of God and be amazed by the grace of God and even be stunned by the sovereignty of God as we see again how he has laid out his plan of salvation, his plan of redemption before he even created the earth. The text that we have before us this morning is a very powerful text, as you will see. And the Spirit of God inspired the Apostle John to write this text. By the way, he was an old man by the time he wrote this. He was still exercising apostolic authority in Asia Minor, actively ministering to a number of churches in that area. And this was written at the end of the first century. He was the last remaining apostle. And certainly he had been an intimate companion with the Lord. He was, as he claimed many times in his gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so here we have the words, certainly, of God himself through the inspired apostle but an apostle who was an eyewitness to the ministry of the Lord Jesus, to his death, to his resurrection, and even to his ascension. And John's emphasis in this little epistle is simply the fundamentals of the faith, the very basics of the faith that I want to bring you back to today. In this is love, he says, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, allow me to be technical for just a moment. And as time goes on, you will begin to understand how this unfolds. The term propitiate is a word that you have probably never used, except in the context of maybe a Bible study. I've certainly never heard it down at the barbershop. It's not something that we talk about. The Greek term is halasmos, and I want you to just remember the sound of it. You'll understand more later. And it's a term used in the Bible that means to appease or to pacify, to placate or to satisfy. And this text and others, as we will see, tell us that because of God's love, he sent his son, Jesus, to be the propitiation or the satisfaction or the appeasement, the placation for our sins. Well, what does this mean? Well, there are three crucial concepts necessary for you to understand, to be able to really understand this glorious truth. And certainly each one deserves far more coverage than I can give it today. But they are simply this. We must first understand the holiness of God. Secondly, the wrath of God, so that we can understand, thirdly, the propitiation of God. We just sang, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And that's where we must begin, dear friends, the holiness of God. You see, no person has come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ without having at least a basic understanding of the holiness of God. And apart from understanding the holiness of God, you will never understand the propitiation of God. Holy is a word in Hebrew, Kadesh, Hagios in Greek, and it means separate from or other. 
the holiness of God refers to the fact that he is of a completely different nature than we are. And he's not to be compared to anything else ever created. The world has only seen one holy being, Jesus Christ. In Exodus 15 and verse 11, in the song of Moses, God speaks and says, who is like you? As he speaks through Moses, who is like you among the gods? Oh, Lord, who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. And in first Samuel two, two, we read, no one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. And in Isaiah 57 and verse 15, he literally says that his name is holy. Friends, I want you to catch this. This is so important. Holiness is the all encompassing attribute of God because holiness portrays his consummate perfection and his eternal glory. It stands alone as the defining characteristic of the person of God. It is, in fact, you might say, the summation of all of his attributes. In Exodus 3 and verse 14, God told Moses to tell the people that his name was, I am who I am. I remember when I was a young man, I thought, I have no idea what that's referring to. He goes on to say, tell the people that I am have sent you. Well, I understand now, and I won't get into it completely in a technical way, but that comes from the Hebrew verb to be. And it denotes that he has life intrinsic to himself. He has life in himself. It literally means that he is self-existent and eternal. In other words, what he is saying is tell them that I am the one who is and will be. You see, God is pure, eternal, unchanging in his being. He is unlike us who are becoming. We are not self-existent. We are not pure. We are not eternal. We are not unchanging. We are becoming something, becoming something different than what we are. And the change that occurs in our life is always moving towards deterioration because of sin. Unlike God, we are radically affected by our sin. We are always moving towards disorder and towards decay. But God never changes because he is utterly holy. He is the great I am that we sang about a moment ago. You see, he is absolutely separate from our nature. He is of a completely different nature than we can comprehend. He is utterly untainted by sin and unaffected by sin. You see, we live and we breathe in the toxic waste of sin. We are born into it. Not so with God. God cannot sin. Nor, and catch this, can he tolerate sin. And he is morally perfect in every conceivable way. Therefore, every action, every decree, every verdict, every adjudication and judgment on sin is always perfectly just. Every decision is righteous. In Genesis 18 and verse 25, we read, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? It's a rhetorical question, of course, because he is utterly holy. 
In 2 Timothy 4.8, the Lord is described as the righteous judge. So whatever he chooses to do or not to do is perfectly just. And only a proud fool would question or condemn his actions. Throughout Scripture, we read of God being holy, holy, holy. The trihagion, as the theologians would call it. He is not love, 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 nor is he described as mercy, 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 or grace, 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 though he is those things. But because he is holy and because holiness is the summation of all of his glorious attributes, he is described as holy, holy, holy. The doctrine of the holiness of God is crucial to the gospel of Christ In fact, every gospel presentation must begin there. Think of it this way. As you approach someone who needs to know who God is and know the salvation that he affords, you must begin by helping him or her understand that God is utterly holy and that his law demands perfect holiness, that God hates sin and that sinners cannot survive his judgment without a remedy for their sins. They must understand that sin is what makes peace with God impossible unless God does something. Sinners cannot satisfy his holy justice. They must understand that because of sin, there is an infinite chasm between the sinner and the holy God. And that they must understand that all have sinned and that his just verdict on the sin is death. They must understand that a sinner can do absolutely nothing to earn his salvation. And they must understand that on their own, they cannot change their sinful nature any more than an ant can become an elephant. They must understand, therefore, that man is in a terrible state of affairs. That's the bad news that must preface the good news of the gospel. And if that isn't bad enough, because God is holy, sin must be punished. And folks, if God wasn't angry with sin, he wouldn't be perfectly holy. Because, you see, holiness cannot exist apart from judgment. Now, here's where it begins to get real offensive in our culture. Not just ours, but even in every culture before You see, it's the nature of man to resent God's authority and to rebel against it. Moreover, man hates to be called a sinner. So throughout history, you see man doing two things. First of all, man will invent gods of his own liking, gods that he can manipulate and placate through his own devices. And then secondly, he will invent his own standards of morality that will justify his sin. Recently, I was explaining the gospel to a man and I had spent much time with him, and finally I could tell he and his wife were getting very uneasy. And, and he said, whoa, whoa. He said, sorry, and this is a bit of a paraphrase, but sorry, Dr. Harrell, I, I, I just reject all that sinner stuff. I remember him saying that, all that sinner stuff. And he said, yes, I've made mistakes, but I'm only human. But to say that I'm wicked, that that somehow that I have an evil heart and that I'm that I'm a sinner deserving eternal hell. No way. I believe in a God of love, not a God of wrath. 
But dear friends, a fear of the wrath of God is essential to salvation. You see, God is not looking for a buddy. He is not looking for a friend. He is not looking for a teammate. He is looking for a worshiper. And worship begins with the fear of the Lord. And we must therefore first understand his holiness. Secondly, we must understand, therefore, the wrath of God that flows from his holiness when he is offended through sin. Now, here again, this gets very offensive, not only to the unregenerate, but unfortunately, I found many believers secretly resenting the idea that God will pour out his vengeance and fury against sin. And certainly, if that is your feeling, I would say in all humility, your profession of faith is suspect. Because of the proliferation of wide gate theology that dominates contemporary evangelicalism that portrays God in perverted ways, you will find people seeing, for example, that, well, God is one who anxiously paces the throne room of heaven hoping mankind will exercise his, his free will and allow him to somehow love them, but certainly they do not see him as a God of wrath. Or others will see him as some powerless little deity that has no idea what is going on and, and he just merely reacts to what humanity does, hoping to someday shower them with his affection, but they don't see him as a God of vengeance against sin. Others will see him as some stingy heavenly father who will make you healthy, wealthy and wise if you figure out some kind of mystical formula of faith. But they won't speak of him as a God whose nostrils flare with holy rage against the wicked. Or others will see God as some sentimental deity that loves everyone and he loves them so much that he's just going to forgive everybody and everybody's going to be saved. But they do not see him as a consuming fire. Dear friends, those depictions are not the God of the Bible. All throughout the Old Testament, we read of how sin kindled the wrath of the Lord in Deuteronomy 32, 41 we read, my hand takes hold on justice. I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. In Psalm 7 and verse 11, we read, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. The idea that, it, that is that he is angry with the wicked every day. In Romans 1 and verse 18, we read, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And later on in chapter 3 and verse 23, we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In John 3 and verse 36, we read that he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And in Ephesians 5, verse 6, the Apostle Paul tells us that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He also tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10, he speaks of Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, rescues us from the wrath to come. Beloved, 
God is also a God of wrath because he is a holy God that cannot let sin go unpunished. There are over a hundred passages in the Bible that speak of the wrath of God. In fact, wrath is used 13 times in the book of Revelation alone. In the unveiling of Jesus Christ, we read how that someday he will return in majestic glory as the conquering king. For example, in Revelation 6:16, we read of the wrath of the Lamb. And in chapter 16, verse 1, we read of the wrath of God being poured out upon the wicked on the earth during the time of the tribulation. And in chapter 19, verse 15, we read about the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now, friends, there are basically five kinds of divine wrath in the Bible. And we witness them in various contexts. First of all, there is the sowing and reaping wrath of God, where if one sows the seeds of unrighteousness, they will reap a harvest of divine judgment. Secondly, we see the wrath of God and the cataclysmic judgments throughout Scripture. For example, the great flood and his judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. We can also read of, thirdly, of eschatological wrath or that wrath that will come at the very end of the, of the world during the time of the tribulation, right before the second coming and during the second coming. There's also the wrath of divine abandonment in Romans 1, where God finally gets fed up with those who shake their fist in his face and he gives them over to a reprobate mind, a worthless mind, and allows them to experience the consequences of their iniquities. And then finally, there is the ultimate wrath of an eternal hell. But you might ask, what does God's wrath have to do with our salvation, especially with this concept of propitiation? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. And dear friends, I want you to listen very closely here. We, we want to take our sandals off, so to speak, because we're on holy ground here. Think of it this way, because of God's holiness, because of his, therefore, demand for justice, because his anger is kindled against sinners, because sinners have violated his holy law, and because sin cannot go unpunished, his wrath must be appeased. It must be satisfied. It must be placated. And this brings us back to our text this morning the third crucial concept that we want to examine here today, this astounding concept of propitiation, the propitiation of God. Now, remember, I told you that the word propitiate in Greek is halasmos. It means to appease, placate, satisfy. There is another related word, hilasterion, which means that which satisfies, that which propitiates. And there is the verb, helaskamai, which means to make satisfaction or to appease someone. Now, in light of that, I want to remind you of something in the Old Testament. You may recall that in the Old Testament, God gave specific directions on how to build a tabernacle. And later on, the tabernacle became the temple. And in that tabernacle, there were to be the Holy of Holies. And no one could dare come near that inner sanctuary of the Holy of Holies because that was the place where God would reside. That was the place that housed the Ark of the Covenant, which Ark is merely a box. 
The only person that could go in that place was the high priest one time per year on Yom Kippur. Yom means day. Kippur atonement. Day of atonement. And inside that ark, which was a box made of gold, you can read about its dimensions in, in fabulous detail in Exodus 25. But inside that ark was the covenant, the law of Moses, the holy standard that God had given, the Sinaitic covenant. And above the ark and on each end were golden cherubs that covered over the ark with outstretched wings. And all through the Bible, you understand that the cherubs were that the cherubim were the ones that guard the holiness of God and stand in his presence to do his bidding. For example, Isaiah six. And between the cherubs. One would see the Shekinah glory if you were to look in. That brilliant, dazzling, ineffable, glorious light of the presence of God. Too brilliant to be seen by fallen eyes. But friends, there was a lid on top of the ark. A golden lid that separated the law within the ark from the holy presence of God above the ark. Well, why was this the case? Well, simply because the law had been violated and God's holiness could not be contaminated by sin. And so here we have this glorious object lesson. And dear friends, that golden lid of separation has staggering implications for every sinner who wants to be reconciled to a holy God and have peace with God. For on that lid, divine justice and grace would come together symbolically every year on Yom Kippur. When the priest would sprinkle the blood of an animal and make atonement for the sins of Israel, picturing a reconciliation. Dear friends, that lid was called the mercy seat, the hilasterion. That's what the Septuagint called it, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. For it was that place where the just wrath of God was symbolically propitiated, where his fury was temporarily appeased, where his anger was symbolically satisfied and his vengeance upon sinners was placated. In fact, God tells us in Exodus 25, beginning in verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat, the hilasterion, on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There, in other words, on that hilasterion, I will meet you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. Dear friends, what an amazing picture of divine propitiation. Of divine mercy and grace and love that was decreed before time began, the Bible tells us. Before anything was ever even created. If I, can, if I can digress for a moment with a footnote in Hebrews chapter four and verse three. We see the writer of Hebrews quoting God's stinging declaration in Psalm ninety five eleven, where he says, so I swore in my wrath. 
they shall not enter my rest. In other words, in his wrath, God swore that unbelievers will never enter into, into the spiritual rest of salvation. But he goes on to say something fascinating. He says, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What an incredible thought. In other words, God's plan of redemption was decreed and set into motion from the foundation of the world before we were even created. And friends, think of this. The certainty of his plan being accomplished was so sure that he declared it to be finished when it was first decreed. Friends, that is the sovereign God that I worship. And beloved, central to his redemptive plan was a perfect propitiation One who would perfectly satisfy his holy demand for justice. This is what was pictured in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, it's important for you to understand that the animal blood did not actually propitiate God. It only symbolized a coming sacrifice that would eventually satisfy once and for all. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, we read that the animal sacrifices were a shadow of the good things to come. In fact, the whole Levitical system was an object lesson explaining the need for a sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God. A transaction that would require a propitiator. One who would propitiate the divine wrath against sin. So the animal blood never paid for one single sin. In fact, in Hebrews 10:4, we read, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. This is why, dear friends, that there were millions of sacrifices. Priests were literally butchers covered from head to toe with blood. And the lid of the mercy seat was crusted over with dried blood for many hundreds of years of blood being Poured out upon it. But in Hebrews 9, 12, we read that Jesus entered the most holy place once for all. Having obtained eternal redemption. So the Old Testament sacrificial system merely pictured the ultimate and final propitiation, the sacrifice of the Lord. In 1 John 2 and verse 1, we read that if anyone sins, and of course we all do. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, the halasmas for our sins. Folks, this is a fascinating concept. Stick with me here. An advocate is merely like what we would call a defense attorney. Now, imagine trying to defend someone before the judge who comes in and says, I'm guilty. I confess my guilt. The Bible tells us that Satan accuses the brethren day and night. But we've got this advocate with the father. Now, how can Jesus defend us before God's bar of justice when we acknowledge that we're guilty? Well, the answer is quite simple, because according to this verse, our defense attorney, our advocate is himself the propitiation of our sins. In other words, the penalty has been paid by Christ. Justice has been satisfied. God's wrath has been placated. So our sin has been removed. Our guilt has been removed. The wrath of God no longer abides upon those who have placed their faith in Christ. In John 3.36 we read, Therefore there is no 
I'm sorry, in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Now, again, as a footnote, some may ask, what about this word I've heard, expiation? Well, expiation, ex means out of, and that has the idea of guilt being taken out, taken out of us. And certainly because of Christ, our guilt has been removed. That is expiation. But dear friends, there can be no expiation without propitiation. Does that make sense to you? God's justice against sin had to be satisfied before our guilt could ever be removed. Now, folks, we want to go just a little bit deeper into these amazing depths. What is more fascinating than all of this? And please hear this. This is so incredible to me. God himself provided the means to appease his own wrath. What an amazing paradox. And folks, herein is the love of God. You see, no one can possibly fathom the love of God apart from first being humbled by his holiness and trembling before his wrath and then grasping this glorious concept that God has appeased his own wrath by sending his very own son. That is an incomprehensible love. Now, with this background, we go again to our text. Notice first John 4:10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Oh, dear friends, the love of God is merely a superficial sen sentimentality to those who have never staggered under the weight of his holiness and his wrath. Truly, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, as Proverbs 1 and verse 7 tells us. Friends, every sin must be punished. And as sinners, we could never appease his just wrath. So how could we ever be forgiven? Well, the answer is that God had to provide a perfect substitute. One who was a man who would die for men. And one also who was God to be perfect and the spotless lamb who was the Lord Jesus Christ. And dear friends, we either seize the gift of divine grace through faith in Christ who alone could satisfy the wrath of God. Or we must become our own propitiation. And if you choose to do that, then the only way you will satisfy the holy and the just wrath of God is to spend an eternity in hell. You see, there are only two remedies. Either Christ is the propitiation or you will be the propitiation. Which will it be? You see, God cannot exchange his wrath for love unless his justice be propitiated. And yet, because of his infinite love, God has provided his son as a means of placating his own wrath. What amazing love to send his son to die on our behalf to satisfy his judgment on sin. Beloved, Christ did not die on a Roman cross, as you hear on the news and all these pundits and Hollywood people are saying. He did not die on the cross to provide us an illustration of love. He, he did not die on, even though it certainly is that, but that's not at all the primary reason. 
He did not die to be the supreme example of humility. As many that have seen this recent movie, The Passion of the Christ, would suggest. But friends, I want you to hear this with great authority. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross as a payment to God the Father. It was God the Father who killed His Son. Not the Jews, not the Romans, not all of us. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, we read, He had to, made, he had to be made like His brethren in all things, referring to Christ, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And in Romans chapter 3 and verse 24, we read, We have been justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Folks, the propitiation had to be one that was even public. And all of the world sees it. He goes on to say, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. See, again, there's his holiness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, all of those who sinned prior to Christ and all of those who longed for forgiveness were saved not on the basis of the blood that was spilt on the Hilasterion but on what that symbolized in the blood that would be spilt in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to say, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, I hope you see how the holiness, the wrath, and even the love of God through Christ, our propitiation, are woven together into the scarlet rope of redemption. Don't you see it? When by grace God comes along and causes a sinner to be awakened from the slumber of his sin, and sudden he, suddenly he beholds the sword of divine justice looming over his unholy head, then the terror of the Lord will... Fill his soul and cause him to cry out, oh, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And then God saves them. And when God saves them, God glorifies himself. Because, you see, God is glorified in his wrath when sinners are judged eternally. Likewise, God is glorified in his grace when sinners are pardoned eternally. Oh, but such mercy could never be offered had there not been a propitiation. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, apart from Christ Jesus, the only appeasement for divine wrath would be your eternal damnation and mine. Oh, dear child of God, what a savior is Christ Jesus, our Lord. I want to close with this thought this morning. Today we celebrate the resurrection of our precious Savior. And certainly the resurrection of Christ symbolizes our new birth in Christ. It, it also speaks to the fact that His resurrection will guarantee ours, that He is the first fruits of our resurrection, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. 
But according to Acts 17:31, we read that, that that his resurrection was really the father's approval that indeed Jesus Christ was the perfect propitiation and the one that will be the judge someday. In Acts 17:30, in the middle of the verse, we read, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What an incredible thought. Now, practically, you ask, oh, these are incredible truths, but what shall I do with them? How shall it change my life? Well, certainly if you're here without Christ today, I hope you see that you don't have to be the propitiation for the wrath of God unless that's what you choose to do in your foolishness and in your pride. And so certainly if you're here without Christ, you need to run to the foot of the cross and ask the Lord to save you. And he will. But for those of us that know Christ, here's how this concept should change our life today. And I've given this to you in your bulletin. According to that great reformer, Francis Turretin, one of my favorite theologians that lived from 1623 to 1687, the atoning work of Christ that appeased the wrath of God, he says, tends to the increase of piety by increasing our dread of sin. Folks, is that what it does in your heart? Do you hate your sin more than anything else? He says, which is so great an atrocity that it could be washed out only by the blood of the Son of God. And by inflaming our hearts with a mutual love towards God that we might, according to our strength, love him who so dearly loved us. End quote. I hope that this will cause you to hate your sin. And love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul. In ways that perhaps you have never done before. For Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled by the testimony of your infallible record. And we can only echo the words of the Apostle Paul. When he, after reflecting upon these truths, said, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. God, take these eternal truths and pierce our hearts with them. And we pray especially for that one or two or three or perhaps many that are here today playing church. Oh God, how I pray that You will overwhelm them with conviction. May today be the day that they run to the Savior the one who has appeased the wrath of God on their behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.